This is 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17, God's promise to David. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed." Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. This is the word of the Lord. One group of people that always amaze me are architects. Um, I'm not an architect, but I realize when I talk to architects and see their work that they're not just constructors of buildings on paper, they're artists. I remember when we built this sanctuary, we got together with the architects and they listened to us. And basically we told them a story. We told them a story about light and beauty and space. We told them almost nothing, really, of substance. We just told them about aesthetics and what we thought was beautiful. And then they came back with sketches of a building. They eventually came back with this. None of us really conceived this ourselves. But it was conceived in the mind of the architect. Now what was uh, delightful about the process, of course, was watching it go up and wondering what it would look like. But the architect, he didn't really wonder. He already knew because he'd planned the intricate details. However, whenever the day came, 
and it was finished. And we had the celebration. The architect sat at the back of the sanctuary and enjoyed the beauty of the work of their own mind. You know, some of the greatest architects in the history of the world were medieval architects that constructed in their minds cathedrals that are still in Europe and they never saw the final product. Sometimes more than a hundred years later before the product was complete, it was just in their mind. I want to use the image of an architect to approach this text that we just read. Before I do, I want to acknowledge that it's not the best image to use. I'm stretching the metaphor to the point of breaking, I realize, but let me engage it anyway. First of all, I want to say something else about architects. When an architect designs a building, there are multiple complications that go into this solid structure. Now, I don't mean the design itself. I mean the people who are a part of the process, the builders and the owners. There's the complication. You have, as you're moving along as an architect, you've had change orders. Somebody comes up with the asinine idea to do something different right in the midst of all of this. And the architect has to restructure and figure out how's it going to happen. Or let's say, for instance, cost overruns. That's another one. Architects hate that. Cost overruns because, you see, they project how much the project is going to be. And then at the end of the day, the owner says, are you kidding me? This is this much higher. They have no control over that. The market fluctuates. The price of bricks and mortar goes up and down and thus the complication. But you know what? All those complications are solid. Even though complicated, they're not mysterious. We know prices go up and down. We know change orders are going to happen because of people. But when you apply the title architect to God, as it relates to human history, oh, there's another whole level of complexity. Yeah, God is the author of human history, according to the Bible. The architect of a divine plan for human history that will culminate someday in its ultimate fulfillment. We get that, but it's complicated. Why? Because, well, let's be honest. The architect's invisible. And the plan's invisible. Oh yeah, we've got the Bible. We've got directives from God. We have the will of God. But really, it's invisible. Just as God is. That's a complexity. It's, it's a mystery. There's something else that's complex about divine architecture and human history. It's human ingenuity. The plan of God is delivered to human beings who are almost eternally ingenious. Not really, but almost. And their ingenuity is mixed up with the nastiness of sin. And so this grand architect God for human history works with the bricks and mortar of sinful human beings with all their sinful ingenuity. And somehow, he crafts his design. Those designs for human history, they're mysterious and they're multidimensional. Even more complex than the greatest cathedral of Europe.
Now, with that as the backdrop, I want you to consider God the divine architect as it relates to just this text, or sort of just this text. David says to God, God, I want to thank you for all you've done for me. You've given me victory over my enemies. And that's really a short cryptic statement because we know from other passages of Scripture what that actually means. It means my kingdom has expanded beyond my wildest dreams. The nation of Israel is larger than it's ever been. It won't go any further, we know. It went all the way to the Euphrates. People from the northern section all the way up to the Euphrates were giving tribute to David. That never happened before. David says, this is unbelievable, God. You have blessed me so abundantly, I've got to build you a house. Thank you, God. As a matter of fact, that was just the appropriate thing to do, wasn't it? Why not glorify God by building him a temple and thanksgiving for all the blessings he'd received? In cultural terms, it was quite appropriate. We know from ancient cultures that the Canaanites, whenever they had victory in battle, they always ascribed the victory to God. And they frequently, after a large victory, created a space for the worship for the gods. So David, in keeping with cultural history and in keeping with just his divine intuition that God gave him, said, I've got to express my thanks to you, God. I'll build you a temple. A reasonable response. And perhaps because it seems so reasonable, so culturally relevant, so theologically relevant, Nathan said, Amen, David. Do what's ever in your heart. That's a noble cause. You build that temple. And then Nathan went back home. And that night, God revealed to him something entirely different. He said, Nathan, in effect, you overstepped. You told David to build, and I didn't. I want you to go back to David, and I want you to confront King David, and I want you to tell him this from me. David, it's not your place to build the temple. Let me ask you a question, David. God, in effect, says, did I ask you to build the temple? No. Another question, David, did I ever ask any leader who preceded you to build me a temple? No. Do you really think, David, that I can't exist without your temple? Do you know I've dwelt with the people wherever they've been with a tent and the Ark of the Covenant? What makes you think I need the temple and what makes you think you ought to do it? You know, I don't know um, what David's heart response was to that statement from God through Nathan. But I know what mine would have been. I would have been hurt. I would have been bothered because my heart was in the right place. According to the text, he wasn't building it for himself. He was building it for God. No matter, though I can't understand what his heart condition was, God says to him, it's not your place to build this temple. As a matter of fact, David, let me tell you about yourself. You're not the temple builder. Here's what you are. You're a shepherd. You're a shepherd of my people. And as a matter of fact, you're quite right that everything you have is given to you by me. 
I took you from the shepherd's field and I elevated you all the way up to the top of this kingdom and you have been the person who's given conquest to this land and delivered your people from enemy after enemy. You're at peace. All this is from my hand, David. You're quite right from that, about that. I've taken you from here to here. But your legacy is not the temple. Your legacy, David, is your throne. Your throne's going to endure forever. Your kingdom will be an eternal kingdom. And here's what I'm going to do, David, while you patiently wait. I'm going to take a son that comes from your own body, and I'm going to give him the responsibility to build my temple. Do you remember where we were last week? Dan preached on a story that was the lowest point in David's life, the story of David and Bathsheba. This precedes that story. And God says to David, David, I'm going to raise up a son from your body to build my temple. And what he did not say, but knew as God is that the son from David's own body would come through Bathsheba. Solomon, the son of Bathsheba. Solomon, from the wife that he had stolen from another. Solomon, from David's wife, whose husband he had murdered. I'm going to take your son... And I'm going to build my temple, David. All before it happened. And your son is going to follow me and I'm going to love him. I'll never let my love depart from him the way I left Saul. He'll be loved for me by me forever. He's going to mess up. And whenever he does, I'm going to punish him with a rod of men. I'm going to let my wrath through others come down on his head. But I will always love him. The part of the text that was not read this morning follows in verses 18 through 29 of that same chapter 7. And what follows is basically this. David, after hearing the word from Nathan, says, Oh, my Lord, I'm overwhelmed. Instead of reading the entire text, let me summarize it this way. David says, God, who am I? that you should choose me. God, do you, do you do this to all human beings? We well, know he didn't. He, it's a rhetorical question. Of course you don't. Why are you doing it for me? Oh God, I'm overwhelmed by your grace. You're a great God. There's no God on earth like you. Not only have you chosen me and made my kingdom eternal, you've chosen Israel and you made them your special people forever. You promised through me to establish an eternal kingdom. David is just overwhelmed with gratitude towards God. And I want to suggest that everything that David give, gave thanks for was only what David understood. Now you say, well, duh, Bob. Why would he give thanks for anything else? 
what we know in retrospect from the New Testament scriptures is that many of the references to David, eternal kingdom, to Solomon, temple, are references that would only be fulfilled in Jesus. And my friends, he had no clue who Jesus was. He did not know the incarnation that we know. He did not understand, I don't think, the full gamut of the grace of God that was revealed to him on that day. All he knew was this, my kingdom's going to be eternal and I'm unworthy of it. Thank you, God. You're going to be with Solomon forever and my kingdom will be a great kingdom. You've established peace and it'll be eternal. We'll never have problems against our enemies again. And none of that was true. But it was true. As soon as Solomon was to come along, he would have a gigantic, beautiful, wonderful kingdom. And right upon his death, the kingdom would fragment into two kingdoms. And after it fragmented into two kingdoms, there were wars against the, between the two kingdoms. And after wars between the two kingdoms, both kingdoms were finally conquered and taken off into captivity. Peace, eternal throne of David, where's that, I ask? Had David been able to see the future, he couldn't have understood unless he'd seen what we now have in hand as the revelation of God. David thanked God for the present blessings and he acknowledged God's sovereignty. Not because he understood the future, but because he knew God was good. Let me throw in something just real quickly. Sometimes um, we look at the Scripture and we search judiciously for what I'll call authorial intent, okay? The intent of the author. And then we say, once we've found the intent of the author, we've found the inspired text. The inspired message from God. Hear me clearly. As important as that is, and I believe in it, it's not the end. The inspiration of the Scripture goes beyond the authorial intent of David or Elijah or Paul. Deeply embedded in the Scriptures, if we understand inspiration as we ought, is the revelation of God that is multiple in its layers and in its meaning and is yet to be completely fulfilled. So to understand the intent of David in his words and his prayers is only to understand in part. Because the revelation of God is so much bigger, so much grander. Now at a practical level, what about us in terms of the mysteries of God's plan? The first thing I note about the mysteries of God's plan is this. The revelation of God moves, shall I say, vacillates, oscillates is a better word. Oscillates between human and divine all the time. First it's human and David thinks he understands it and there's a divine layer there he's got no clue of. And then the ultimate synthesis, oscillation between human and divine is when Jesus Christ as the second person of the Trinity enters 
this human condition called our sinful humanity. And in the midst of it, redeems the whole mess. We look back at these texts through the understanding of the apostles and see the grace of God and we see Jesus. But we couldn't have seen it without the historical record of who Jesus was. You see, ultimately, the mystery of God, which seems to oscillate between human and divine, the mystery of God is yet to be revealed fully. So when we embrace the oscillation between human and divine, when we embrace the revelation of God, we have to embrace the reality that it's not over yet. That God is not finished revealing Himself. He's given us His revelation, but even the revelation itself is unfolding before our eyes, and we don't fully understand it. Why do I say that? Because I know I'm hard on us sometimes, but as evangelicals, we have this proclivity to think that we can figure it all out. If I do my word study hard enough, I understand the historical context. If I got the authorial intent of the meaning of the text, then I got it. No, you don't. It's happened a thousand times in history. People think they've got it, and they don't. Because of the multiple layers of the divine mystery of God in the Scripture itself. The plan is yet to be revealed. We know in part... Someday, we'll know completely. We stare through a glass darkly, but someday we'll know even as also we're known. That's part of the mystery of the revelation of God. The second thing about the mystery of the plan of God I see in this text is God, (laughs) isn't this amazing? God uses the messiness of sinful humanity to fix the mess of sinful humanity. He doesn't just come from the outside and fix it cosmetically. He doesn't come from the outside and inject it anesthesia. He says, I'll take the junk. I'll take the sin. I'll take the stuff that's right there. And I'm going to shape that sin to glorify myself and to redeem the people who are in the midst of their own sin. That's an unbelievable God. And he does it all the time. Think of this. The lowest point... In the history of King David becomes the highest point of the revelation of who God is. Because it's through the prism of David's ultimate sinfulness that Solomon is birthed and builds the temple which speaks to the glory of God. And the glory of God that's yet to be revealed. And the brighter of the book of Hebrews looks back at the temple and says, look at all this intricate detail. It speaks not just about God right here. It speaks about an eternal temple that's out there. I want to use this metaphor, this image, to help you understand the grandeur of the nature of God's grace and the eternal priesthood of Jesus Christ. All of that, my friend, all of it came through the sinfulness of David's loins. What a great God. He says, you can't mess it up so bad that I can't redeem it. And I will. I'll redeem it. Because I'm God. So the mysteries of God's grace, they oscillate between human and divine. The mysteries of God's grace, they're seen in the sinfulness of humanity. Something else concerning the mysteries of God's grace, and this is really where we are. 
when we face the mysteries of God's grace? Here's our responsibility. Our responsibility is to thank him for the blessings and trust him for what we cannot yet understand. Thank him for the blessings and trust him for what we cannot yet understand. You know what that takes? At least two things. It takes humility. It takes humility to admit that you don't understand. It takes humility that you can't understand the plans of God. You don't know what he's up to in your life. You can't understand how your family is going to fill in the gaps. You have to humble yourself before a sovereign, almighty, loving, creating, fulfilling God and say God's in control. You need humility because you can't understand and you need faith because you can't see. You know, that's the greatest challenge of faith. It's the invisible. The greatest challenge for the Christian faith, God's not here. Oh, you know I don't mean that completely, right? But you can't dial up the same way you dial up somebody else. You can't reach out and touch them the way you reach out and touch somebody else. Oh, I know about the mystical presence of God. I know about the revelation of God. In the Word, I know about the revelation of God that comes to us individually, but He's not there. He's not personal. He's not, you can't hold Him. And so, you walk by faith. You know He's present, though you cannot see Him. You know He's present, though you cannot hear His voice. He calls you, even though you cannot hear audibly. Sometimes, by His grace, you can but mostly you can't. And faith calls you to believe something that is so counterintuitive. It calls you to believe that the invisible is just as real as the visible. Now, how about that for a contradiction in life? Everything about our reality says the visible is real. The invisible, mm, not so much. And faith says, follow God. Follow that invisible God because he's more real than anything you can see with your eyes. So our response to this mysterious God who has incomprehensible plans is to be humble, to thank him for what we know, and to trust him for what we don't know. Back to the architect theme. I want to add a footnote to that. See, God's not really the architect with a period at the end of that. God's the architect and the builder. God's not bothered by any change orders or cost overrun. He's got it all under his control. Or to put it in the words of the book of Hebrews... He's the author and the perfecter or the completer of your faith. He didn't just give you a roadmap and say, follow it, good luck, my friends. He designed your life and he's connecting every part because he's the builder too. So, 
life hasn't turned out the way you expected. Right? That's okay. I know it's painful. For some more painful than for others. But God is the author, architect, perfecter, builder of your life. Continue to humbly trust and humbly follow. You're not living up to your own expectations. Newsflash, if you have any standards, you never will. You know you're not living up to God's expectations. That's impossible. What you do know is that God's in charge of your life. And he's taking the messiness of your life the parts that are outside your control and the mess that you yourself have created. And he's taking the mess and he's shaping perfection. He's shaping his intricate architectural design for you and for the people of God. Oh, there's something else about the architect theme. Those great medieval architects, they could never see the final product. God knows. He knows the beginning from the end. You may feel like the medieval architect who has it up here but can't see it out there. God's a divine architect. He created it. He can see it. And he's knitting your life together to glorify him. Trust him. Follow him. God will do great things. Let's pray. Lord, we're just so grateful that we're not alone. My, what a dark and lonely and oppressive world it would be if that were true, that we were on our own. We'd have to make sense out of it all. We'd have to be the architect and and the builder and and you, you've promised us that we don't have to do either. Because you have plans for us, Lord. You've designed us in certain ways to glorify you. And in spite of our foolishness and our sin, and it's so much a part of us, you, the great architect with loving hands, are reshaping and recasting us into your image. And all the things that seem to have gone horribly wrong in our lives, either beyond our control, or because of us. There's some way in which you, the divine architect, can take that change order, so to speak, and shape it into your will. You can, Lord, conform us to your image. You can direct our lives. Help us to believe you, to believe in the invisible reality of your hand in our life and also to humbly follow you knowing that we don't understand but still we can fully trust and we'll thank you for that in the name of christ our lord we pray amen